<coughs> first thing I want to say this evening is um, please don't let me give a monologue. Please interrupt me. I like being interrupted when I talk. Um, it's not meant to be a kind of preaching session. <laughs> so, it's, uh, as I say, please do pick up on things I'm saying if it, or if you find anything contentious, please come back at me because it's not meant, as I say, to be simply a monologue. It's meant to be a dialogue. Now, obviously, we have a discussion forum at the end as well, but that can pick up on things during the day if you want to. Um, so it doesn't just have to be um, isolated to what we're talking about this evening. So that's my, um, that's my sort of plea for this evening. Interrupt me. <laughs> okay, well, I thought I'd um, start off with again. I hate to keep going on about this, but this notion of renunciation, and I want to try and put it into a bigger context as well. And perhaps one of the things that we're also talking about with renunciation, and we talked about some of the obvious elements last night, I feel, some of the really, really obvious elements about looking at our relationship with things that we have, looking at our relationship with, for example, knowledge that we might gather, looking at our relationship with even the Dharma, with the Buddhist teachings, and how we might accumulate it and accumulate it and never practice it, for example. And over the years, I've seen a lot of that. People who've accumulated have tremendous amount of knowledge. I move in circles where, actually, being involved in academia as well as teaching retreats like this, I see lots of people who have tremendous knowledge of the Dharma, have tremendous knowledge of Buddhism, but very rarely practice it at all. It doesn't impinge on their lives. So when we're looking at our relationships with things, the question has to be, why do we want to know? Particularly in relationship to the Buddha Dharma, why is it that we're interested in this particular question? Is it just speculation? Or is it something perhaps that I'm going to inquire into and it's going to affect my life? So those are some of the things we touched on last night, but perhaps I want to try and broaden it out slightly and relate back to the first evening when I was talking about something again I touched on last night. The habits, the conditions, the propensity to cause ourselves pain, suffering, anxiety, misery, unsatisfaction, sort of the catalogue that you could roll off of, of unpleasantness that we isn't inflicted on us. Mostly we cause for ourselves. That's not to say some things aren't inflicted on various people, but for the most part, in the Western world, most of the things that happen, happen to us because we allow them to. Most of them, I don't mean the kind of adventitious things, you know, like getting run over or something like that, but I mean most of the day-to-day -day ordinary misery that we get involved in somehow comes back to us and our ways of dealing with things in the world. Now, Tsongkhapa, who I mentioned last night, also talked about renunciation in the true sense of renouncing sangsara, renouncing the cycle of habit, the cycle of repetition. That's what truly meant also in the term renunciation. 
he puts it even more explicitly because he says what's involved in this is renouncing the idea that samsara actually is ever going to give you any happiness any true, lasting, abiding happiness and the things of samsara with that in mind I think we have to look at the, the kind of habit patterns that are involved we have to investigate them we have to investigate them very, very thoroughly in our ordinary daily lives it's all very mundane this is not esoteric this is not the, the kind of thrilling stuff of spiritual books it's the very mundane stuff of really getting stuck into the ordinary aspects of life and seeing how we repeat and have a propensity to repeat I'm going to make a slight digression into a little bit of Buddhist cosmology in fact, the cosmology of Sangsara, which I touched on a little bit last night when I talked about the God Realm. Do you remember when I mentioned how the gods start to smell when they're about to fall out of, out of the, the godlike realms into a lower rebirth? Yeah, I did say you could do this, yes. <laughs> They catch on. They're sorry, they'd catch on. Catch on to the fact that might be. Let me, let me, if you dwell with me a second, perhaps I might answer this in what I'm going to say, actually. And if not, then you can come back at me again. Because one of the things that usually said about Buddhist cosmology, in particular the cosmology of the six realms, is that there's an absolute um, compatibility or one-to-one relationship between the cosmology, I found the mythological descriptions of the various realms in which beings can dwell, and psychology. So these realms are not just seen as being kind of metaphysical realms, like godlike realms and jealous godlike realms and hell realms and all the rest of it. And I'll go into those in a bit more thoroughly in a second. But they're also considered to be psychological realms as well. Now I'll let that impinge on you for a second because it means that we also have to interpret these psychologically now that's not just the whim of Westerners wanting to interpret, interpret everything psychologically it has quite good foundational stuff within most of the schools of Buddhism for this interpretation and you know, in fact the claim that there's this one-to-one -one relationship between the two now let me roughly skirt through the six realms quickly for you Godlike realms, I talked about those last night. I mean, the main thing, the main characteristic of the gods is it's the top of samsara, it's the pinnacle that you can reach in cyclical rebirth, death, birth, rebirth. It's the very pinnacle of it. But notice that the gods, quite clearly in Buddhism, the gods, and this is always usually, you know, the devas, if I can use a Sanskrit term, is always spelt with a small d or a small g, if we anglicise it, put it into English. 
So the gods are firmly within Sangsara. They're not outside at all. Next to the gods, and the Tibetans have a wonderful depiction of this, you've probably seen it, most of you, but the Wheel of Life. They hang generally outside of most Tibetan gompas, outside of most Tibetan temples. Um, virtually every form of Buddhism had a depiction of it originally. It's only the Tibetans that have retained it. And it's a wheel, literally a wheel. It's called the, the Wheel of Becoming, the Bahava Chakra. The Wheel of Becoming. At the top, when you look at it, generally you find the gods. That's the pinnacle. To the right, sometimes to the left, you find the realm of what's called the Asuras. These are usually translated sometimes as the Titans, which is a strange translation. Um, <coughs> often as the Jealous Gods, which actually is a far better one. But Asuras are kind of demons. Um, it's derived, just for those who might be vaguely interested, derived from a Sanskrit word called Asuria, which means without the sun. So the sun never shines on them, literally. And uh, what tends to happen with the Asuras is that they have the roots of the wish-fulfilling tree in their realm and all the fruits in the realms of the gods. <laughs> and they're extremely upset about this. <laughs> um, so they're fighting over it, basically. They want to get to the top. These are the, these are the upwardly mobile gods <laughs> who want to get to the top. <laughs> Generally below that, there's one of the few of the other realms that we automatically recognise, which is the realm of the animal. Um, in Buddhism, the animal realm is considered to be a realm of blind instinct um, and a realm of immense suffering. Um, we don't even have to go to Buddhism to authenticate that. I mean, the, the philosopher Schopenhauer once said, I look around at the animal realm and everything's eating everything. <laughs> So it's an immense realm of suffering. Going to the other side, before we get to the, to the very worst, the bottom of it, we have the human realm to the left of the gods. Now here, the human realm is the realm of potentiality. That doesn't mean necessarily actuality. It's the realm of potentiality in the sense that it's the potential for wisdom, it's the potential for compassion doesn't necessarily mean it's an active, by the way, but at least the potential is there. Within the Spetan system, and I think I mentioned last night, the precious human rebirth is considered to be extremely rare, and one has to make use of it. Next to the gods, it's the next highest realm. It's not the highest realm in this world of Sangsara, or this realm of Sangsara. It's the next highest realm. Below the human realm, we have what's known as the realm of the praetors. These are, this term is usually translated as the hungry goats, and Tibetan depictions of them are wonderful. I don't know if you've ever seen these. They have these enormously large stomachs, tiny, tiny little thin necks, about that kind of diameter, and a tiny pinhole mouth, and an unquenchable hunger and thirst. So that any food or any drink that they manage to take in causes them immense anguish, immense suffering, because they, it can never quench the desire that they have at all. At the very bottom, we have 
the hell realms. Now, lest you think this sounds like kind of Christian hell realms, it's not at all. The hell realms which are depicted in the Tibetan depictions, and again, this is where the artist's imagination gets really lurid, often in the hell realms. Uh, people being sawn in half and having their tongues stretched out and ploughed and all these sort of things I've seen in depictions of it. But the hell realms, unlike the Christian realms, is a realm where one judges oneself. There's a nice friendly little figure in there called the God of Death, called Yama. He's quite cuddly, really, but he holds this big mirror up to whoever appears in the hell realm and depending on what you see in the mirror, depends on what fate you judge yourself. <laughs> now, I don't know if like me, I don't know how many of you have heard this before. You've probably all come across it at some point in time. But if you haven't heard this before, I mean, one of the things that struck me when I was really young, when I first came across this, was, oh, I know some people like that. <laughs> I know some people in the godlike realms, and I know those are trying to get to the top. I know those as unquenchable desire. I know people in states of depression who occasionally pop out of it, but zoom straight back into the hell-like realms of depression. And I know people who are fairly animalistic. And you think that's very cosy. It's a really nice cosy description, because it puts it safely away from you. And then it suddenly came to me one day, Actually, this is not others they're talking about. This is me. <laughs> and it became even more horrific when it struck me that this wasn't just me over a vast period of time. This was me during the course of the day drifting around in these realms. So from you know, vast periods of time, seeing it as being another's problem <coughs> to being my problem. And my problem is actually not even just a day, but this is minute to minute, hour by hour, that I'm psychologically zooming around these realms. So sometimes I act with the pride and the ego of a god, thinking everything's okay and everything's going to last forever. At the opposite end of the spectrum, you can be plunged as quickly as not, incomprehensibly sometimes, into gloom and despair, almost a hell-like realm. I know one thing, the... the bottom end of the scale tends to seem to last longer than the top end often in our experience so for example in Tibetan Buddhism they have these wonderful mythologies where they talk about incalculable aeons in hell <laughs> just means a long time basically then there are those other realms which you can recognise I certainly recognise within myself of you know, blind instinct desire, sexual instinct you know, desire for craving for food for all sorts of things just acting instinctually, without thought whatsoever. Then you recognise the infinite craving. Now, within Buddhism also, craving is something that can never be satisfied. It's unquenchable by its very nature, and it's personified in these figures of the praetors, in the, the hungry ghost. Then we have, you know, the kind of upwardly aspiring. You want to get to the top in some way. It doesn't matter what the field is. You want to get to the top and have all the kind of riches that the others have got. And I'm giving very, very crude characterizations here of the kind of psychology that we're involved in. But as you can see, it leaves us with one question, as far as I'm concerned. 
and hopefully you know, perhaps you'll investigate this for yourself. The question for me is always, how often in that day do I dwell in the potential of the human realm? That's the question. Do I spend very long dwelling in the human realm, which is the realm, remember, for the possibility of the enactment of wisdom, for want of a better word, and compassion. The two tools for awakening, or the two characterizations of the awakened person and the person on the path to awakening. Interestingly, of course, in all these depictions in certain forms, the Buddha stands outside of all of this. He stands outside pointing at the wheel of Sankara. Within each realm you also get a Bodhisattva who supposedly is there to help those within those particular realms. Nobody is above being helped in any of the realms psychologically. And if one takes the the literal metaphysics of it. But the question, as I say, is one of, okay, I go through all this in the day, how often do I dwell in the realm of that utmost potential, potential of what it means to realize the human? Because far too often I'm far from human, in the very real sense of the word, as characterized within Buddhist thought, in terms of wisdom and compassion. Coming back to my original starting place, perhaps the question is, do I actually, am I actually engaged in renouncing Sangsahara? Engaged in renouncing the endless craving, the attachment to blind desires, to struggling to the top, all of the other aspects, you know, to the godlike realms. The aspirations of the godlike realms and the aspirations of the godlike realms are only too apparent, I think, in certainly in British society, with you know, the win a million, <laughs> reach the realm of the gods. You too can be, you, know, you can have it all, have it all, and perhaps have nothing. We don't know. But that's the question: is can we, or are we, perhaps? engaged in that sort of renunciation. Now, in terms of our own day-to-day existence, it's there for us all to examine our relationship with, as I said initially, with the things that we have, the things that we desire, our need for the things that are profit. Now, the one thing we know about Western European societies, Americanized societies to a great extent, is that we profit a tremendous amount. And I think that we underestimate sometimes the power of what is proffered to us. We underestimate the power, I think, of marketing, advertising, all the sorts of things that people are now starting to protest about. The power of multinationals, globalization, and the endless, endless supply of goods and things that we can have as a substitute for being. In many ways, 
And perhaps this sounds very cynical. I'm not being cynical. I'm being hopefully diagnostic. And you can come back at me if you think I'm being cynical. Um, in many, many ways, we're engaged in the Western world, generally. And of course, everybody varies you know, considerably. But when I look at the Western world as a generality, we're engaged in amusing ourselves to death. Because that's what seems to be happening. We seem to be accumulating more and more toys with which to distract ourselves. To distract ourselves from the existential issues which, at some time, are going to confront us. And those were the very ones that the Buddha pointed to initially and became his impetus to examine the cause of unsatisfaction. These were caused were old age, sickness and death. And of course, the sight of somebody who renounced an ascetic. Now unless you live close to monasteries around here, you don't see too many ascetics wandering through the streets of London or through the streets of Birmingham. But what we can learn from that as a metaphor is, and I would go back to something the Buddha actually said as an injunction to, not necessarily to us as lay people, but it's worth pondering, even as something that doesn't necessarily directly apply to us, because I think we have to consider it if nothing else. He enjoined his monks to be content with little. And again, I think, you know, little for monks means, you know, a certain number of requisites that they're allowed to have. Now that's not the life that we lead. We're not supported by the monasteries, we're not supported by the Dharma, for example, of Theravada countries and the various forms it takes in Mahayana countries. But I still think it's something that should echo in our thoughts, is this aspect of, are we actually being content with little? Now, the little, of course, is the middle way here. Because the Buddha himself experienced the extreme. Um, He experienced, in the mythology, the opulence of the palace. And the other extreme was the extreme asceticism that would have been present in the India of his day, living in the forest, living on berries and leaves, and I don't know if any of you have seen the statue in the British Museum of the emaciated Buddha, you know, the Buddha who looks like you know, the skin and bones, with a kind of skeletal face. This is the Buddha practicing in the forest. All it did was make him weak and lose his power altogether. He was hardly able to do anything. Now again, those are mythologies which perhaps still can speak to us and speak to us about a mode of living, a mode of being. And coming back to that phrase which more and more as I look around in the Western world and look at my own desire to have things is the question, do I need it? given that most of the things that we have these days have such dire consequences. We buy them often from vast multinational companies which are doing all sorts of things which if you 
don't have to probe terribly deeply below the surface of a lot of these companies to see, of course, they're involved in all kinds of forms of exploitation. You know, exploitation of the environment and of other people, often. And, moreover, generally both. So it's very incumbent on us, if we are, I think, trying to think ethically and tr- think through the notion of renunciation in this daily world, to think through our relationship with our desire to have things. Our desire to accumulate. Because all too easily we can fall into unthinking behaviour about it. And I don't mean willfully, maliciously, willful or maliciously engaging that behaviour, but it becomes unthought, unseen, unaware, because it proffers because this is what it's seen to be within Western societies in a certain way. All too often, of course, we fundamentally mistake what we have for what we are and make that confusion as well. So that we become associated with our possessions. Now, there's one obvious obvious word for this, which is attachment grasping to our possessions. They somehow intrinsically make us what we are. Now, I'm sure most of us don't consciously think that way, except in a few exceptional circumstances. We don't necessarily readily identify with what we have, but we still get extremely upset when we lose. Again, that impermanence thing I spoke about on the first night, when we lose, something is destroyed, mislaid, stolen, it breaks down. Somehow it's as if a part of us is being cut away. Now I don't think I exaggerate on this, and I'd be interested in your comments after I finish. I don't think I exaggerate here. But we do have this over-identification with what we own and what we possess and it gets intrinsically mixed up in a sense of our identity. Might be our car, might be our house, it might be just a very small thing. Something perhaps we call a sentimental value, that's one of the ways in myriad ways we cover up these things. Yet, this is fraught with danger. And I'm sure you're aware of what the danger is. The danger is of course, the things I've mentioned. But we will lose it. It will get broken. It will get stolen. Somehow it was not in our keeping. Interestingly, I mean, just a slight digression, interesting in Tibetans, um, when they purchase religious objects, which is very interesting for religious objects, things like statues like this, or tankas, uh, these scroll paintings which are painted on silk, the actual word in Tibetan, when they pay for them, isn't I actually buy it, they pay a ransom fee for it. So you don't actually own it. So you're not supposed to get upset if somebody comes and takes it away from you, because you never owned it in the first place. It was only on ransom to you. <laughs> I have to go to the Tibet shop in London. <laughs> you have to go to the Tibet shop in London, yeah. 
see if they live up to it. <laughs> now, without being too idealistic about it, but it's somehow in, in, you know, ingrained into the culture that that's the relationship you have with religious objects, certainly. Not necessarily ordinary possessions, but religious objects. But they're somehow outside of your control. Yet, as I say, in our ordinary sense of possession, they become you know, intr- almost seen as being intrinsically part of us. Now, also our possession can be not just things that we have, can be status too, can be standing within society, the opinions of others. It can be a profession that you hold. And again, all too easily, for all sorts of reasons, those things are taken away from us. No matter what great status you might have in a particular profession, eventually you end up, perhaps you risk most people end up retiring. They lose it. They lose that position within life. So even these become possessions for us, which get bound up with our identity. It is almost as if we want to turn ourselves into things. We're frightened by the fact that we can actually be all sorts of different people, all sorts of different things. In other words, have the freedom of mind, which can be quite terrifying. Far safer, perhaps, to want to identify with your profession, with the things that you have, and all the myriad ways in which we can do that, than to kind of be this open space for possibility, open space for the possibility of change. Once in, I was in South Africa, I had a very honest answer actually from um, somebody who I met there, and I asked him what he did, and he said, I play at being professor of linguistics. <laughs> which I thought was a wonderfully honest answer, because that's in a sense what you do. You play, act, whatever you're doing. That doesn't mean to say you don't necessarily have to take it seriously, because some professions are very, very important. But they don't become part of your identity. They are not you. Again, that's rigidity and fixity of mind. A closing down. The older we get, the more that closing down occurs. From the openness of children becomes the fixity and rigidity of old age as life starts to close in and fear takes over as well. And even more important do our things, our status and everything else become to us. So life becomes a prison house, circumscribed. Now I'm only giving all this as a kind of diagnostic of what can happen and invariably does happen to some people. A wonderful phrase by Benjamin Franklin, I think some of you might have come across. Benjamin Franklin, an American politician, an inventor, who said that most people were dead by the age of 25, they just weren't buried till 70. (laughs) 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 Which is uh, obviously a way of saying that we've closed our life down in terms of our own possibilities. Now, obviously there's a great deal of exaggeration in that, but one is very struck, struck forcibly 
by the kind of almost truism within that of how we, you know, we're almost fully formed by a certain age with our directions, our goals, our careers and everything else and where's the possibility? where's the freedom? now society dictates a lot of that for us education, which personally I'm involved, dictates a lot of that so it takes a lot to break the conditioning I've got a question coming at the back, of comments? Biological determinism, if there are such things, which you seem to be implying there are, 
if there are some forms of biological determinism, do they necessarily have to translate into psychological determinism? Because remember, everything gets psycho- psychologized by us. We are immensely psychological beings. So it's I think there's a number of starters to this whole thing. Um, let me try and deal with them as much as I can. Yes, of course, there's primality there. I don't think I don't think Buddhism would deny that, and I don't think the psychology behind Buddhism denies that. In fact, in in some forms of psychology, it looks at biological drive, for example, which can't be overridden to a certain degree, but they can be transformed psychologically. They can actually be transformed. So, even, let's take the, you know, the Buddha's teaching about his monks, they have to be content with little. That's enough. In other words, satisfying biological functions. Even the monasteries have what you would call pecking orders <laughs> of monks. It's called seniority in terms of ordination. So some of those things are taken care of, catered for, but within a highly exercised structure. And that's the, the, the place for transformation of these drives. So they're not just simply kind of drives which have been acted blatantly, but they are channeled in certain ways into an ethical form. And I think that's what I was meaning when I almost said to Suzanne here about 
that actually a lot of our primal drives, our primary drives are coming from our animality, if one wants to put it that way, are also psychologized. This is, you know, for example, which makes our approach to food vastly different to an animal. We both have the same drive, the drive to sustain ourselves through you know, eating, yet there's a very great difference between our approach to food, which, you know, for example, here it might be vegetarian, but even if it's not, you know, to the kind of meals that we eat and prepare for ourselves and buy for ourselves and the sort of biological drive that compels the lion to tuck into an antelope on the Serengeti. The drive is the same, but there's something about the, the, even the aestheticization of it that occurs within the human social animal. So I think many of our basic drives have been already channeled into societal functions. I mean, this is something that Freud talks a lot about, into societal functions. So we're dealing with them already um, separated from very, very great, almost instinctual aspects because they've been sublimated, they've been channeled in acceptable societal ways. Now, in general, that tends to mean, I think, that they've been channeled in social, acceptable, ethical ways of behaviour. And I don't think Buddhism is any different in that sense. It offers, a, it offers, in scare quotes, a religious culture which exercises our being in the world. Now, if there's anything that, that Buddhist practices involved in, it's got to be the transformation of our basic drives into ethical drives. So, I mean, I'm not disagreeing with you, I'm just thinking that, you know, what you're talking about, there is transformation of those things occurring within a framework already. Psychological becoming, and uh, what you're saying. Well, the opposite of renunciation. Right. You're, you're, you're trying to have something in a time of trying to grasp something in the future, yep. or from the past, so you're never in the present. Yeah, I, I don't disagree with that. I think that's very, very, it's a very interesting way of putting it. It's really about you know, putting it in a slightly different way, it's really about not maintaining confusion between what you are and what you have, which often so easily occurs for us, and a path of continual accumulation, which we can be engaged on, which I think is what you're talking about in terms of the path of becoming. Open this up for much more general discussion if people want to. <laughs> Thank you.
Or perhaps they're just feeling sleepy. Yeah. Um, in reference to animals mm. and, um, and their world, a little earlier you were saying that um, Buddhism sees the animal world as, as the lowest realm because it's full of suffering. There's not the lowest realm. There's not the lowest realm. Okay, not the lowest, but one of the lowest. One of the lower realms. Right. They're all eating each other. But as far as I can see, the animals, whenever I look at animals, to me, they seem like they have a lot less suffering than people. I mean, it's just say in the natural world. They don't um, jump in and out of the different realms like we do. I doubt very much whether they visit the... um, No, they don't have the baggage, do they? Exactly. <laughs> That's for sure. Exactly. I am that, actually. Yeah, but one has to remember, of course, um, when talking about these cosmologies, I mean, they're drawn from 4th to 5th century BC India um, with a very rudimentary understanding of animal behaviour and everything else. So when early, and it's not just Buddhist culture, actually, it was when early Indian culture looked at the animal realm, that's what they saw happening. It was very much what struck them about the animal realm, that, you know, that it was this realm of immense suffering. Just the way that human beings exploit animals, for example, is very much part of that. So, you know, I still think it has, a, you know, whilst accepting everything you say, actually, it, I think it still has a kind of psychologi- as a psychological model. I think it's okay, because it's just saying, look, some things act blind instinctually. They don't think about it, they just do it. Now, in terms of human behaviour, that can possibly be extremely detrimental. Extremely detrimental. Although, whilst accepting, of course, what you're saying, that the animals don't have also all the other baggage that we take along with us. So I think it's partly cultural. You have to see where it's derived from. They're not, they're not making great statements about the animal kingdom in general, but just a, a crude psychological um, look at it. That's all that's going on. Perhaps looking at the animal Yes, I mean, one of the things it doesn't have, <laughs> and this is again looking within the context of its time, um, for early Indian culture, of course, which Buddhism grew up with it, it doesn't have that psychological ethical component. It's, it's not about transformation, it's not about living as ethical a life as possible. Now, that appears to be missing. Now, the ethical is very much something human, trying to live the ethical weighing, considering, and, and making judgments in terms of ethical judgments. Mm. <coughs> where would you put ethnic cleansing? Oh, where would you put ethnic cleansing? Well, a sense of identity. In other words, something is being seen alien to the group, which has to, just like, for example, you and I have a sense of cleanliness, which we get from a very young age, psychologically. 
In other words, it's part of our sense of identity that we have a clean body, for example, and different cultures distinguish what's clean and wholesome from what's disgusting and unwholesome. Again, psychologically, one could say groups possibly have that behaviour as well. Now, I'm not upholding it, I'm just saying this can be explained as a form of behaviour to support a false sense of identity. A false sense of identity. So therefore you get rid of what you consider to be the defining, defiling elements within a society. Now if you look at all the cultures engaged in forms of genocide, that's exactly what they've had to do to be able to engage in it. To accuse the other, whatever that other might be, as being a defiling agent within their society. You know, from you know, what happened in Nazi Germany all the way up to the Balkans. The, the rhetoric appears to be the same, although the consequences are quite different in each case. Well, actually, the consequences are the same. Genocide in these instances. But it's this, again, it's this trying to create a sense of identity on false premises. Now, we'll look at that perhaps tomorrow night in another way. Isn't it again about the scarcity of resources or the perceived scarcity of resources? You know, it's um, well, you know, if you look back at, at a lot of history, it is about people either where their economies have fallen or their fields that they have, you know, are everything is in collapse and in fear of the scarcity of resources. Mm. They they generate their anger, their which is a survival response, and misdirection at what is available or mm. who is available. So, in a sense, it is, it is a primal response. Again, it is not a very it is a, a dreadful thing, but it is a primal response, a group primal response. Mm-hmm. Scarcity of resources by and large, if you take it down, peel back the onion. Yeah, I mean, and animals do do that. Mm-hmm. They hunt in groups. I, I feel sometimes we presume our sophistication, or we dress up what the creature that is a human does, and get lost in all these ideas and stories. I mean, my response to that is these are two competing narratives which for me have equal weight in many ways. I mean, there are different different ways of creating narrative structures about the same behaviour in a way. Now, I don't quarrel with that because whichever one um, you accept, whichever one is useful to you, is fine. Um, From a Buddhist point of view, there's still the question. In either of the narratives, either the one I've given or the one you're giving back to me in this particular instance, is there room for transformation or is it just determinism? Now, I think Buddhism falls very strongly on the idea, and again, you don't have to accept it, which some of you are not anyway, is that it's not simply all determinism. There is freedom within it. Yeah, there is room for improvement in the human condition. Um, we don't have to, almost, you know, if you're talking about it in these biological models, you don't have to fall back 
all the time on the biological. You can, even in the most direst of circumstances, act ethically. That's the possibility that Buddhism opens up. It doesn't say that it's going to happen, but it's the possibility for change that can occur, even in the most dire competing circumstances. Now, <clears throat> my own take on that is, well, if that's true, it's worth investigating. <laughs> you know, or even if it's plausible, it's worth investigating. Rather than kind of, I suppose, and I'm just talking extremely personally here, just kind of throwing up my hands and saying, well, there's nothing we can do about it because it's biological or it's psychologically determined or, or whatever. For me, at least, it's, it's worthy of that serious, serious investigation. Um, whether societies can change, but whether I can change. And that's, yeah, I don't live on my own, I live with others within a society. without knowing much about the biology of it, is that human behaviour is fairly aberrant <laughs> a lot of the time. Um, and it's the aberrancy of, of our behaviour often that we need to look at. And again, just extrapolating from what you're saying, I hear the idea of hoarding as well. You know, um, we stockpile food, for example. Um, very few animals do that, and if you say it's only for a couple of meals, um, whereas we can stockpile forever and ever and ever and you know, have huge bursting larders full of food. So we, so we do things aberrantly. Um, and I think given perhaps the commercialization of our world, then that forces us into yet further aberrant behavior. Now, I mean, I kind of cut the story short because we're you know, sort of running out of time for the discussion period is to come back to that investigation to, to look at it to look at our own behaviour let's not generalise I mean I am generalising because I'm talking about what supposedly we do in the western world and all those sort of things I've said but ultimately we need to come back to our own behaviour to see what perhaps we are doing aberrantly that we don't need to do whether we are responding personally, ethically, in our daily lives. You know, we are vastly, I mean, not only we're aberrant, we're vastly deviant. 
I don't know if you've ever noticed this. I mean, the excuses that we can make for all kinds of deviant behaviour and come up with wonderfully rational, uh, rational explanations of why we're doing it and why we need to do it. Well, it's that kind of self-deceptiveness, I think, as individuals, and then perhaps collectively, we need to, to look at. And, in other words, the sort of things we've been talking about tonight, for it to mean anything other than to be kind of a nice intellectual chat at the end of a long day's meditation, then it's got to pan out in terms of our own behaviour and the way that we approach just our daily, day-to-day existence. Now, we in the West, of course, are embedded into vastly complex systems. So it means looking at quite a lot of areas of our life and how we connect with what's going on. So it's not a simple thing at all. double-edged sword, isn't it? In, in developing sensitivity to what's going on, it also leaves you open to, as you say, the brutalities of a lot of that. Yet, we have, you know, it's a very easy statement to make, not to be overwhelmed by it. We can, in other words, if we, I think, understand a lot of where it's coming from, in terms of our own lives, for example, no matter how sensitive I've become, <laughs> I still can't help get the feeling that in ordinary things I'm still propelled by greed, hatred and delusion in a lot of just ordinary things, in day, ordinary day-to-day dealing, despite the fact I feel you know, over quite a long period of you know, having practiced Buddhism and being engaged in meditation and engaged in doing this sort of thing, you develop a sensitivity. Yet it's easy to keep on displacing it onto the other and saying that's all going on outside but that's in a sense still a reflection of what's going on inside even if I'm developing awareness and so the task still thinks that I think becomes initially to change oneself now one doesn't do that in isolation you do that in relation to your environment but in seeing I think an understanding where the wellsprings of so much of our own behaviour come from and this is very much a Tibetan understanding of it. Yeah, and it varies from tradition to tradition. But the Tibetans always say, in really, really understanding this, 
you begin to develop great actual, you know, rather being angry about it, being overwhelmed by it, you develop tremendous compassion as to why this is coming about in general. Why, you know, because you know, companies are composed, you know, multinational companies are composed of individuals who engage in this sort of behaviour. So it's not as if you're pointing a finger at a kind of um, faceless thing. In fact, you end up pointing a finger at you know, people who engage in this sort of behaviour. And that really is, is the result, I think, of, of developing a sensitivity, developing a sense of change, of understanding where our own roots and propensities for behaviour which are fuelled by greed, hatred and delusion arise from. But it makes you connect with others because you also see that they too are driven from the same wellspring. And that, you know, all I can say is a promise to know does can develop compassion towards it. And actually, real compassion is not about feeling all kind of sentimental about it. It's actually about engagement. Uh, this is why in, in, in Tibetan Buddhism, one of the personifications of compassion, I don't know if you've come across this, is a figure called Mahakala. Mahakala is kind of uh, a four-headed, fire-eating, stomping monster. Um, and he represents the kind of active nature of compassion that's aroused to deal with this sort of thing. So rather than sitting back being overwhelmed with it, you actively get involved in doing something about it. So, you know, I don't know if that's not an answer to your question, it's kind of response really, rather than an answer. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, I can't come here. Now, what we've got here is the two extreme tensions. 
Remember I said it was like spinning a thread? That was the analogy that threatened you, and that's very much what's embedded into this Mahamudra practice, is spinning it as if it's a thread. Now, in order to do that, you've got to experience the end of the spectrum. Now, I don't know where this happens. This is, in general, what usually happens for people, is on the one end of the spectrum, where you are trying to cut off swords, A, difficult, I don't know if you've noticed that. I mean, somebody mentioned to me that uh, chopping off thoughts was like sort of chopping off Hydra's heads, because they came up even quicker. (laughs) And that's exactly often what happens. Now, the other thing is, if you you do it for any length of time, and I don't know whether this occurred to you or not, um, we might not have done it for a long enough period yet, is that you actually start to get quite tense in doing it. Okay, there's your one end. the tension side of it. Now, I don't know what happened with the other end. Tendency is, particularly if we're doing it quite late in days, you get so sleepy. Oh, it's quite nice watching all these thoughts as they kind of cross my mind. Oh, there's a good one, I get caught up in that nice story. And, you know, the, the two, the, you know, our two old familiars used to start creeping, sloth and torpor. <laughs> our two familiar friends. And when they start to creep in, of course, you start to get sleepy and drowsy and everything. As long as it becomes too relaxed. That's the other end of the spectrum. Now, what we're going to go and do, this is a promissory note for tomorrow, so keep me to it. What we're going to do tomorrow is alternate between the two. And then you choose the alternation. So that you're watching and observing, and I'll come to your philosophical issue in a second, you're watching, observing the quality of your own mind. So this insight has to be taking place here. Am I becoming too torpid, too sleepy, or am I becoming too tense? And then to automatically change the balance of the meditation from the cutting off thought to the movement into just letting thought go. And we'll do that for a while. We're going to stabilise... You know, I've given you quite a number of practices over the last few days, and we're going to stabilise it into a, a couple that we're now going to do for a couple of days and really give you exposure to them, because these are the essence of the Mahamudra practices. Some of the exercises we've done so far have been there to kind of try and create some quiet and stabilisation. You're talking about the watcher. Who's watching the watcher? <laughs> well, I mean, it again shows up the nature of the mind as process. But there is not just one watcher. There are a number of different ways of watching. Now, in this form of Buddhism, they talk about primary mind. Mind as such. doesn't make it a thing, again, it still makes it a process. But that's the kind of bottoming out. If you've ever come across this old philosophical problem, which is, you know, if I'm aware, then I must be aware that I'm aware. And if I'm aware that I'm aware, then I must be aware that I'm aware that I'm aware. (laughs) (laughs) And it gets into an infinite regression. (laughs) You can't stop it. Now, in most forms of Buddhism, they say that you are aware of becoming aware because there's a form of awareness which is the most fundamental form of awareness which actually, most of the time, you're not aware of at all. It kind of bottoms out the whole thing. Now, it doesn't say, it's, and this is what we're going on to do, that it can't be accessible to some kind of reflective awareness. 
but it's the ground that makes all reflexive awareness possible. Now, if that sounds confusing, don't worry, because we'll be going into this. I'll talk a little bit about, about this as we go into the week. But it's the, it's the most basic fundamental level of awareness which allows all the other awarenesses of phenomena to take place. It's the most, it's what we would call a non-reflexive form of awareness. And that's, in, that's the most fundamental nature of mind. It's that which is clear and knowing, it's that which is free, and it's that which, which is spontaneous. And that's what Mahamudra is trying to get at. So you've hit on the fundamental question. I think actually the musical and the, the learning of anything, particularly musical instruments, is a wonderful analogy for describing particular development of, of uh, calming the mind and concentration. And in fact, I mean I won't go into it tonight, but if you're at all interested, you can ask me this in another discussion. You can actually look at the various stages of learning something like an instrument, or even learning to drive a car, in terms of the different jhanas that are put out in meditational stages. Because, you know, for example, you move from, from difficulty, um, where you've got kind of access concentration, in other words, you're trying really, really hard to get at it, to moving up through stages of relative joy, that it becomes easier. And, and lack of awareness of oneself, as one gets progressively, remember the word jhana itself actually means absorption, as one gets progressively absorbed into the task itself. And with that natural arising of absorption, comes joy, which they call piti in, in, in Pali. Yeah, so it gets this tremendous joy coming out of it. So if, if you want me to see that another evening, I can quite happily do that. Could I ask you a question? That, that I was and left on the board, but <coughs> the discussion this evening has been really very much about over the last. Mm. But I'd just like to kind of bring it to a close the questions that I asked, because I feel as though there's such a huge natural pull mm -hmm. to greed, hatred and delusion of our natural state. Mm -hmm. um, so why are we all sitting here and wanting to change something that seems to be very natural? Um, so just accepting. Well, let's put it this way. <laughs> yeah. Is, is, is it a natural thing? Well, is it, is it any more natural? And I'm just kind of counter-posing the question. Is it any more natural than sometimes being quite kind and generous? It might be rarer. <laughs> it might be a lot rarer. 
But why do we say there's the natrium? Simply because there's more of it, a greater preponderance is about. Why does it make it any more natural? It just means there's a lot more of it about in terms of the grief, hatred and delusion. But, and I'm talking in terms of ordinary human behaviour, again, and it might be biological coming back to some of the things that have been said this evening, but, for example, um, in general, parents care for their children. In general, not always. But parents care for their children. They look after their offspring. They care for their relatives. They love. They're kind. They're considerate. They're friends. They're often just extremely generous with people that they care for in that way. So there are these, you know, these aspects, for example, um, without over-idealising them, around in human behaviour. Yet there is all the other side of it. Now, I, mean, I didn't want to go off into this, but there's quite an interesting little um, thing that occurs, not in Buddhism, but I often use it in, in Buddhist talks because it does connect very closely. A German philosopher, somebody called Heidegger, who was writing uh, all the way from the 30s up until 1976 when he died. And he talked in a big book of his, it's a huge doorstop of a book, um, called Being and Time. I wouldn't suggest you go away and read it, but there's a little distinction he makes in there, which I think is quite fascinating. And he said that the basic, basic nature, um, and he does this through analysis, it's well argued, it's not kind of just a statement, but he says, the basic nature of human being is care. We care for all sorts of things. That's the basic human nature, one of caring. In fact, one of the statements he makes, and I think it's extremely Buddhistic, is that we are most ourselves when we're caring for others, for example. But he says, actually, that's the authentic state of our being, but actually, most of the time, we're not caring. We're actually concerned. Now, it's interesting, you can't do the same in English, but in German you can make this because the two are cognate words. The word for what's roughly translated as care in German is something called Zorge. And then concern is besorgen. So you can see the word zorga is c- contained in it. So concern is a narrowing of a basic state. So we're concerned, rather than caring generally, openly, towards other beings and caring for them and caring for the things that we have. And that's not necessarily being attached to them, but caring for them, looking after them. Like we would look after plants, for example, because we care about them. In ordinary human behaviour, in our ordinary, average, everyday forms of behaviour, we're actually much more narrow than that. Instead of having a general sense of care, what we have is this extremely narrow sense of concern. So I'm concerned about my projects in the world, I'm concerned about my immediate family, and I'm concerned about my friends. So as you can see, it's a very narrow circle. Now I think the interesting thing is he's saying here, don't have to believe it, again, just think about it. Um, but I think it, this connects very, very well with a lot of what's said in Buddhism. Is that you actually can only have the, the bad article, if you like, the inauthentic article, which is concern, if you have the authentic. So in other words, let's put it in extremely crude terms. You can only have a genuine coinage, you can only have a counterfeit coinage, I should say, if you have a genuine coinage. So, most of our forms of behaviour are the obverse of something which is far more fundamental. So you can actually argue that the most basic state of human beings is the Dalai Lama, despite all the odds, 
continuously reaffirms basic nature of human beings is good. Not greed, hatred, delusion. No, that's the unnatural state. The basic state is of goodness, kindness, clarity. Only we don't see a lot of it. Why not then? Why not? Well, it's a long story. (laughs) 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 It's a long story. Just one final question, because we must be a little bit of sitting before we finish up, before we go... Well, I mean, actually I could, in response to that, again, I'm, I'm not going to disagree with you at all. I can, I'm just going to transpose it, that's all. Because, for example, Shantideva, who's an 8th century uh, Indian writer, in something called the Bodhicharyavatar, which is a way of behaviour of the Bodhisattva, says exactly that. He says, caring for you is caring for me. He says exactly the same thing. You're putting in probably more contemporary terms and biological terms and if that, as I said earlier on, if that's a narrative that makes sense and you're happier with than the kind of narratives that are coming from the traditional Buddhist forms, fine. I mean, personally I have no problem with that if it, you know, if, you, if that's still a way of changing. <laughs> um, but that's exactly what, that's exactly what um, Shantideva is arguing throughout the whole of Zocharavatara, that, that, that because of our interconnectedness, it makes sense for us all to care for each other because of that sense of you know, your pain is actually ultimately ends up being my pain and my pain ends up being your pain. So you know, that might have a biological rationale for why it happens, but sometimes I just think Shantideva puts it a little bit more poetically. <laughs> oh, that just be enlightening might be. <laughs> 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 Shall we finish off the evening with, uh, we're going, going to have 20 minutes, but we're going to have 10. <laughs>